I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is what we call a royal psalm. It may have been read, it may have been sung, it may have been prayed on the occasion of a coronation of a king of Israel or the commemoration, the annual commemoration of that king's rule and reign. What I'd like to invite you to do this morning as Steve Harding comes to read this psalm, I'd like to invite you to read it with a lens such that can you see Jesus, what you know about his life, his death, his ministry, can you see Jesus in this psalm? This is Psalm 72, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 12 through 14. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a moan field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteousness flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. For he will deliver the needy who will cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help, and he will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And now let me invite you to turn to the gospel according to Luke, the third gospel in the second chapter. Luke 2, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 for several Sundays beginning today, and we're going to be looking at the three reactions to the Christmas event. And the first reaction to the Christmas event we're going to see is in verse 18, which is the reaction of amazement. Let's begin with verse 8 of the story. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, Christ the, Hebrew, uh, the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, which means the anointed one. He is the anointed one, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby swaddled or wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Then in verse 16, So they, meaning the shepherds, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. And then in verse 18, we get what I'll call the first reaction of Christmas, and all who heard it were amazed 
at what the shepherds said to them. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Recently, I was in a group of Oakmont folks. And you know how people sit around, stand around, talk, share news, information. And one person shared some news about someone. And I remember there was someone else in the group who said, you must be kidding me. And the person who had shared the news said, no, it's really true. And the person responded a second time, you've got to be kidding me. No, it's, it's really true. So the conversation continued for a few moments on another subject. And after a while, the person who had expressed surprise and amazement came back the third time, named the news that had been heard, and said, you've got to be kidding me. Now, wouldn't you just love to know what the news was that was shared <laughs> in that group? And wouldn't you just love to know the name of the person who kept saying, you've got to be kidding me? Well, I want you to know that I can share that information with you individually. <laughs> if the price is right, As my father used to say about a, a number of matters, it's not for sale, but it could be bought. Well, you know, this is what Luke does in Luke chapter 2. He kind of dresses up that response. You must be kidding me. Come on. He dresses it up a little bit because we find out in verses 16 and 17 that here the shepherds have gone to find Mary and Joseph and this is what it says next, and the baby. See, we don't even know his name yet, except in chapter 1, Mary is told by the angel, when the angel appears to her, that you're going to have a child and you are to call his name Jesus. But the angels appearing to the shepherds at this point, they haven't even named the child, haven't even said what his name is. So, the, the shepherds go to Mary and Joseph and the baby to see him. And then they begin, the text says, to spread the word. And then we get to verse 18. And all who heard it were amazed. Maybe your translation says wondered. Maybe your translation says marveled. That word can mean to be in awe, to be awestruck, to be surprised, astonished, astounded. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They were amazed. So you see, when you hear news and you just can't believe it, then, you know, that's your response. You've got to be kidding me. And that's really what the response of the people was to this news that this Messiah had been born. You've got to be kidding me. You see, the first reaction to Christmas, the event of the Christ child being born, is amazement. you got to be kidding me. But you know, the question for us today, I think, is 
Why is it that the first recipients who heard this news about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one being born, why is it that they were so amazed? You see, the Jewish people had been looking for centuries for their Messiah. And now the angels come in with breaking news. You know how all the networks love to give you, you they flash on the screen, breaking news? Well, here was breaking news. The Messiah has been born. They even share what his location is and something about his identity. Look for a mother and a father and a newborn baby swaddled. You ever seen a child swaddled? You know what I'm talking about? Wrapped tightly in a blanket. Look for a swaddled child. And here's the other identifying mark. That child will be in a manger. You know what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. It's what the animals eat out. Mary just didn't have time to get the nursery ready, did she? So, so we got to use what's at hand. Let's put him in the feeding trough. You know, maybe Psalm 72, the psalm that we just read, maybe it gives us a little insight into why there was so much shock why people were astounded and astonished and awestruck and marveled and amazed that the Messiah had actually come. Maybe Psalm 72 can give us a hint. I I wonder if one of the reasons that the people of Jesus' day were awestruck, shocked, shocked, and stunned by this news is because as time moved on, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus just did not fit the boundaries and the expectations of what the Jewish people were looking for when it came to who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do, and to whom the Messiah would relate, despite some biblical evidence to the contrary. You see, many of the Jewish people were looking for a political and military ruler. They had been crushed for centuries by foreign governments and foreign oppressors, and currently the Romans were in charge. So they had gone for centuries under the rule of other people, and they were looking for a great king after the line of those two great kings of Israel, David and Solomon. By the way, did you notice that Psalm 72 begins, it says, of Solomon? Wouldn't it be interesting if Psalm 72 was the actual historical document that was read, prayed, or sung at the coronation of Solomon as king of Israel? Wouldn't that be something if that's the exact document that was read, sung, or prayed during that time? So you see, the Jewish people are looking for this great king. And then, as time passes, they learn that this great king they're looking for is not matching up to this one who has been proclaimed as the Messiah, the Christ. Doggone it, this this so-called Messiah has actually turned into a social justice revolutionary of all things. He's someone who cares about the socioeconomically afflicted. I mean, this is according to Psalm 72, looking forward at what the Messiah would be. This is someone who who cares about children. This is someone who cares about 
the poor. This is someone who cares about the oppressed, the weak, the needy. I mean, this is all right here. We just read it out of Psalm 72. It, it just doesn't match up to this great military and political ruler and king after the order of King David and King Solomon. And in fact, Jesus is born of such a socioeconomic strata of people himself that that fact keeps people amazed and keeps folks constantly saying about Jesus' life and ministry, you got to be kidding me, the Messiah? This guy? I just kind of wonder, and I'll invite you to do a little self-introspection for a moment. I just kind of wonder if sometimes today, if we're also not amazed, astonished, awestruck, stunned, shocked. I wonder sometimes today if we're not amazed because God often acts beyond our understanding and beyond our expectations and beyond the boundaries that we draw. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this about yourself, but I really believe it's true about you, and I believe it's true about me. I believe every one of us in this room has a little biblical and theological box in which we have picked up God and put him inside that box and closed the top of it. Every one of us in this room has got a little box that we've placed God in. And according to our little biblical and theological box, there are some things that God can do and some things God can't do. There are some things that God, ways that He can act and some ways He can act according to what our biblical box says God can act and do. There are some people to whom God extends His love and His grace and His forgiveness and some people God just gives up on. He doesn't mess with. Because every one of us have, got, have our little biblically-based theological box. And what we miss out on, and this is what I'm observing about people, not just you, but people everywhere, and I think it's been going on for decades and even centuries. Many of the ideas that we have about God are more culturally-based than they are biblically-based. I hear so many people today concern that culture has infiltrated the church and God's people and are we making decisions based on culture or based on the Bible and culture has wrapped itself around our neck so tight as a noose that we don't even see it and recognize it. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how we kind of move about in our life and we don't, we don't understand that we've placed God in this box. Have you ever heard the old saying, God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you heard it. I also like to make sure you're still with me periodically. If I get a little movement out of you, I know you're still alive. God helps those who help themselves. Right? Do you know that's not in the Bible? That, that's actually a, a statement that was attributed to Benjamin Franklin. And he didn't really originate that himself. We, we see it many years, some years in American history before Franklin said it. 
And many scholars believe that God helps those who help themselves is something that really originated in ancient Greece. And beyond that, it's not biblical teaching that God helps those who help themselves. What's biblical teaching is that God helps the weak and God helps the needy. Everything that Psalm 72 was talking about. God helps the weak. He helps the needy. He helps the oppressed. God helps those people who get out of the way so that His power can be demonstrated and seen. That's how miracles happen. Is when we get out of the way and quit trying to solve the problem or fix whatever's going on, we get out of the way and allow the power of God through His Holy Spirit to bring about the miracle. But you've got tons of Christian people who believe God helps those who help themselves. And biblically speaking, God helps those people who move out of the way so He can be in charge. Have you ever heard the old saying, God will never put more on you than you can handle? How many of you have ever heard that? Good, you're still moving. That means you're alive. God, well, what? You've heard it, haven't you, choir? God will never put more on you then you can handle. That's not in the Bible either. Now it is true that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says regarding temptation that God will never place more temptation upon your life than you are able to handle and that He will give you a way to resist that temptation if you want to live into His power. But the Bible never teaches that God will never put more on you than you can handle because that implies that there's a God that flips a switch that puts pain and suffering and sorrow on your life. Do you believe that? You think God flips switches to afflict people? What the Bible teaches is that it is through our pain and our suffering and our sorrow that God develops our character and He tries to grow us up into maturity in the likeness of Jesus. And wasn't it the pain and suffering of Jesus on the cross and the sacrifices that He made in His life that developed Him into the, having the character that He had? Now, I, I'm just going to tell you, the Bible teaches lots of things. But a lot of the things that are in our little boxes that we have constructed are not biblically based. And God is a God who refuses to stay in a box. He doesn't have any restrictions. Now be honest, we do. There are just certain things we don't think God will do. God doesn't have any limitations. We do. We put limitations on God all of the time. God doesn't have anything that He can't imagine, that He can't create, that He can't perform. There are no miracles that God can't work in a person's life, a family's life, a church's life, a nation's life, or a world's life or experience. But we put a lot of limitations on what God can do. I was talking to somebody recently, and he was telling me, how a few years back that he and his wife really began to wonder how in the world they were going to pay for the second year of a child's college education. They had an older child that was in college. 
that, that child had now graduated and they had lost some financial aid and had lost some scholarship assistance because there was not another child in school now. And they, they both of them, look, looked at what the family's income was and they looked at what the expenses were now based on adding in college education and a reduction in financial aid and scholarship assistance, and, and here was a gap. How are we going to keep our child in, in school without borrowing mega dollars to keep that child there? So, so like so many of us, they were stretching financially to provide for a good education for their child. And they began to pray. God, how are we going to deal with this? And would you believe it? A promotion. A promotion came along for the husband. That promotion came along that resulted in a salary increase that, would you believe it, provoked a, you got to be kidding me, response. Would you believe that the extra salary increase, you wouldn't believe this, would you? Would you believe that the extra salary increase between what the financial resources of the family was now with the new financial aid and scholarship reality and what the expenses are going to be, would you believe that salary increase was almost to the dollar? Almost to the dollar, the amount that the family needed to keep the child in college that second year. Now that was just an accident, don't you think? Or do you believe in providence? And are you willing to think outside the box that you've created in which you've put God, and there are just certain things God can't do? You know, the first reaction of Christmas is one of amazement. It's one of shock. It's one of, you've got to be kidding me. But you know, when God does something that stretches your boxed-in thinking and theology of what God or God cannot do, then I want to invite you to remember that scripture that for an entire year in 2014, we recited as our 50th anniversary scripture from Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. I want you to remember that scripture. Now, a lot of you say you believe the Bible. But unless you practice it and put it into operation in your life, you don't really believe it. So don't try to fool yourself and don't try to fool God. That kind of thinking versus non-action, biblically speaking, is called hypocrisy. When you say you believe one thing and you do something else, you're a hypocrite. So you remember when you box God in and you think he can't do what I think he can do, you remember the scripture that we recited as a congregation for an entire year every Sunday morning in our worship service. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now unto him who is able to do what? Immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine.
Now, how's God going to do that? Paul answers the question in that text. According to His power that is at work within us. The text doesn't say according to our power, a congregation's power, a country's power. This is where God doesn't help those who help themselves. He wants us to get out of the way so that His power can be operative. According to His power that's at work within us. And then that beautiful benediction, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations that even extends to 2016 at Oakmont Baptist Church. I added that part in case you didn't know. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who do earnestly repent of their sins and seek to live in peace with God and with each other. So therefore this morning, let me invite you to confess the sin of your life before God. Those places where you have willfully and intentionally boxed him in. And you need to ask for his pardon and his forgiveness. And you need to invite him to give you that same creative imagination in your life that he has in his heart. So let me invite you silently to pray before God and to receive his forgiveness and his pardon. Let's pray together silently. God, we come to you this morning thanking you for the gift of Jesus, grateful for the forgiveness of sin, thankful, God, that as Scripture tells us that we can confess our sin and you're faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, God, in the midst of our inadequacy, in the midst of our failure, our brokenness, our collective fallen nature. God, forgive that sin, mend us and mold us and shape us into someone that resembles the heart and the spirit of Jesus. The one who came for the oppressed, the needy, the weak, the children, the brokenhearted, those who have made messes in their lives. God, we pray that we would not share the same sin as those people of the first century in which Jesus came. The sin of having an expectation and placing limitations on you and how you would act. We pray, God, this morning that you would allow us to dream the same dreams that you dream and see the same visions that you see.
for our lives individually and for what you have called us to do and who you have called us to be in our community and world. God, thank you that in just a moment we're going to receive the bread. It reminds us of your son being nailed to that cross, of his body offered for us in sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. So we are grateful, God, as we move through this Advent season that you sent Jesus the first time, and we are expectant, O oh God, as you have promised to send him again and to fully bring your kingdom to this earth. So Lord, hear our prayer now as we pray it in the name of the one who taught us to pray. And let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, we're going to share the bread and the cup this morning, but before we do, I want to say these words to you. The peace of Christ be with you.